Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to bless his, his word as we turn to the book of Jonah in chapter 1 this morning. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to pierce both joint and marrow and discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And so now as we Look into your word in the book of Jonah, O oh God. We ask that you would um, just cause your word to have its way in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to uh, learn of you and to be uh, more conformed to the image of Christ as a result of looking at it. And really help us to see the glory of your name and the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of the Spirit. We ask in your name. Amen. So I guess I was thinking about this passage and I asked myself the question, and so I ask it to you. Was there a time this week in particular where you ran from God? Maybe your, you thought your plan was better than God's plan for your life, and so you acted contrary to his divine word, acting as if he weren't present, uh, this really is the daily fight of sin, so my guess is the answer to that is yes for you, as it's been for me, right? Every, every time we sin, uh, we're like Peter, who said, I'll never deny you, Lord. Remember that? And the very next moment, he finds himself miserably denying the Lord to such an extent that when called out, Peter says, I don't even know the man, right? And so we find that in our walk. I, I think if you're a Christian and you've walked in faith in Christ and for any amount of time, you find that the spirit is willing, right? But the flesh is weak, right? The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. So this is a common war in the Christian life. You battle, you fight sin, uh, the flesh and the spirit are going against each other, and uh, a Christian, though, is defined by this willingness and at, at least this willingness to love and to obey God, even though we know the flesh is stubborn, it's proud, and at times it's unwilling to submit. This is the walk of the, the Christian's life. Sometimes, as sad as it is, a Christian may find themselves running from God for an extended period of time. So what starts out as a daily struggle throughout the week and a, and a failure and a loss in that struggle against sin turns out that that act of disobedience leads to another act of disobedience that leads to another act of disobedience and on you go to the point where you find that you have not ran from God during the day or during the week, but you find that you are actually running from God for a more extended period of time, and you actually find that you are further away than you've ever really felt, right? You ever been through a season like that? I have. When I was in my early 20s, early 1920, 
I was a believer for three years. I'd been learning about the scriptures, learning about God's word. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons that led up to this, but there was a season in my life where I moved out of my parents' home and I moved to Ohio. I was living with a friend there in, in Ohio. We had rented an apartment. He was going to college. I was just working and I was living like I didn't, like I didn't know God. And I knew the entire time because I belonged to him. I knew it was wrong. I knew it was sinful. I knew my behavior was not honoring to Christ. And everything I did and all of the things I engaged in, the, the, the Spirit of God was convicting and weighing on me the entire time. And it's because I understood eventually the Lord brought me out of that and he delivered me from that path that I was on. And he brought me back to where he wanted me, but it was a painful experience. And, and the reason that God does that for us is because he knows that we are his children and his children err. And his children go off the path and they find themselves at times lost. And what he does for his children is he brings them back. See, if you don't belong to God and you're going through a season like that, what ends up happening is his love and his mercy you end up pushing away more and more. Every time he calls to you, you just push it away more, push it away more, to the point where you stop even hearing God's voice and call. And the reason you stop hearing it is not because you once heard it, because John says you actually never heard God's voice at all. So you never really knew him, right? That's what, that's what happens. That's what apostasy is. Sometimes people commit apostasy and abandon God in any sense and Christ altogether. And so, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, have you ever read that? You find yourself, by the decisions you make, living contrary to what God desires. And you find yourself in, if you're in the British sense, you could call it the slew of despond. Um, in the American English, it, you might call it, no, American English is slew of despond, and British English is slough of despond. The only reason I know that is because I was talking about that one time in a sermon, and a brother comes up to me, and he says, you said slew of despond, and I was like, oh, I don't, I didn't even, I just, that's how I pronounced it. And he goes, it's slough of despond. And I go, oh, I didn't know that. So then I looked it up and I said, hey, I didn't tell him this afterward, but I, I want, should have went back and said, hey, brother, there's a British version and there's an English version. So I, I said it correctly. Anyway, slough or slew, whatever you pick. The point is you run from God and this is where you find yourself. And that really is where Jonah's going to find himself. You see, God gave Jonah a very clear command. Jonah got a word from the Lord, and it was clear. His calling was clear, but Jonah in his flesh did not want to do it. He couldn't understand why God would desire him to go to Nineveh and preach repentance to Israel's enemies 
And this was hard for him to do. And so he chose, rather than doing the hard thing that God had called him to, he chose to disobey the word of God in that particular area. And then he found himself on the run, on the run from God. And like we pointed out last week, it's important for us to remember here, Jonah was a picture of Israel who was obstinate before the Lord even as God was showing them mercy. That's the Christian, right? God has shown you mercy. God has shown you grace. God is, is kind to you. He saved you. And yet, we live at times obstinate to that truth. And we live as if it's not true and as if we don't actually believe it. And so Jonah's raised up. He's a picture of Israel. And, and God's showing him mercy, but Jonah is obstinate. And so God's loving kindness was meant to lead them to repentance, but Israel was taking his mercy and grace for granted. And so God uses Jonah to show Israel that you may be living this way, but you need to understand that you are without excuse. There is no excuse for you to live in this way after what I have done for you. And so Israel was keen on boasting of themselves as holy people. They were committed to these outward signs of circumcision as a sign of God's covenant, love and with them. But all the while, they despised all the prophets God sent to them. And they went and lived in their own way, relying on their own wisdom and power and plans. And as I confess before you today, that was me. Living as if I took the promises of God and I had received them, but claiming them for myself, living by my own plans, my own wisdom, running from God and thinking that I am justified in doing that. And all the while, God is saying, you are obstinate and hard-hearted. You are not living as I've redeemed you to live. And so you need to come back. And so he's saying that to Israel, and he's going to say it to Jonah because Jonah is set forth as an example of that hardness as well as the mercy of God. So Jonah exemplifies the guilt of Israel before the Lord. It was as if the Lord was saying through Jonah, here's how John Calvin put it, Remember who I am and be content with my authority, for I have ready at hand all resources. When anything stands in your way, rely on my power and execute what I command you. That's a call. It's a rebuke. It's, it's a call to listen to the Lord, and we all need to hear that, right? We all need to hear that truth. That we are not called to live for our own glory. We are not called to live so that we might have the most abundance of all that life has to offer. You are not called in this life to take what is yours and get the most out of it. That's not what God calls us as his children to do, is it? That, that's not why we're here. We're not here for filling our own egos and our own pride and our own 
and our own flesh. And he doesn't leave us in this world so that we can consume and consume and consume. That's what the world tells us, right? You know how the world looks at you and me? They look at you as a consumer. That's it. You're a consumer. Consume this, consume that, consume this. And so well, they just keep selling themselves, selling everything to us, right? Selling food, selling journey, selling trips, selling entertainment, selling sex, selling power, selling, selling, selling. And, and the world looks and, it, and they want us to think of ourselves as consumers. And God says, you are not consumers. You are worshipers of the living God. You are children of the living God. You are a holy people set apart to be a light unto the world of what ultimately a light is shines on the world what is wrong with it, right? So we are to be contrary to the world. And so Jonah, he personally had to learn this lesson and God used this lesson of Jonah to teach him and Israel through his account and us ultimately that God is sovereign and his mercy and compassion is for all sinners. And since God has a heart of compassion for the Gentile sinners of the world, we too should have that same compassion, right? This is what he's teaching them. Now, the way Jonah lays us out in the first chapter is he tells us about, or whoever authored it, Jonah's disobedience in verses 1 to 3, God's discipline of Jonah in verses 4 to 16, and then he's going to conclude with God's mercy toward Jonah in verse 17, okay? Jonah's disobedience, God's discipline, and God's mercy, and so let's hear how Jonah opens in chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us in whose account this evil has come upon us. Was it, what's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? 
for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So as a prophet of the Lord, Jonah was specifically set apart to communicate what God told him to communicate. And he had a privilege. He had insight into this hidden counsel of God that others didn't, right? He's an ambassador for God and God's message. Like Amos 3, 7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And so Jonah was among them. And Jonah had been a faithful prophet in the past, right? Like we read in 2 Kings, he was a faithful prophet. He, he prophesied what God told him to prophesy about the blessing of Jeroboam II's reign. I mean, that's a good prophecy, right? Wouldn't you like to say that? Hey, King Jeroboam, I got a word from the Lord from you, for you. Your kingdom's going to expand. Like, who's, that's no harm, no foul there. Like, who doesn't want to prophesy that? Speak it. Hey, right, I'll tell you God's word. He's a blessing coming for you. In this case, is not the way it is. This is a little bit different. God says, I don't want to go and send you to speak some good blessing to people, but I'm going to send you to this city of Nineveh, and I'm going to call you to proclaim judgment on them. And I think maybe what Jonah is thinking here, and maybe it's, maybe not, but how, I mean, there's some ways to explain his disobedience here, but I think one of the lessons to learn from this is maybe Jonah was thinking, you know what, God, I was obedient in the past, and I proclaimed your word in the past, and I did what you called me. Maybe he thought, I think I'm going to pass on this one. Maybe he thought that. Maybe he thought his past obedience gave him a free pass to obey in this one. Christians sometimes think, you might think that way. You might think, you know what? I've been obedient in this thing for a while, and I think it's okay if I'm disobedient this time. This time I'll be disobedient because I've been so good for the last two months, and in the last three years, been really faithful. And you know what? This is me time. I'm, I'm, I'm done being obedient for now. And I'm going to engage in disobedience. Maybe, maybe that's what Jonah's thinking. Maybe he's, he's thinking, now I'm going to disobey because of my past. And the reality is, past obedience is no substitute, right, 
for what God calls us to do in the present. God called Jonah to be a mouthpiece for God and his word, whether the word is blessing or curse. Whether the word is blessing or judgment, Jonah's responsibility, no matter what he did in the past, is to obey God in the present. And you can see how hard this was for him because Nineveh is a great city within pagan Assyria. Assyria is one of the most significant empires in the ancient Near East. It's located at, and I've never been here, but at present-day Mosul in northern Iraq. It's 600 miles northeast of Israel, and it's known, it was known for its size and its power. In fact, it says, some said, um, estimates of 100-foot-tall walls surrounded the inner city of Nineveh. 100-foot-tall walls surrounded the city, and the circumference of the city is around 60 miles. So if you have Nineveh in the city, the circumference is a 60-mile circumference with 100-foot walls. This is a powerful city. In, in our terms, I, I, I looked at Encinitas. I said, what's a 60-mile circumference around Encinitas? Of course, it goes into the ocean. But north, it would be all the way to Huntington Beach. And south, it would be south of Rosarito, Mexico. Okay? This gives you an idea of how big Nineveh is. So this is a, a great big city. Uh, and it goes all the way out to, remember the youth group, we went to Borrego Springs to shoot guns? That's how far out east it would go, okay? So that's east, northeast, south, okay? I got you thinking about guns, that's no good. Okay, well think youth, don't think about guns, okay? <laughs> all right, so this is a big city, right? And so Jonah, this is why he makes reference to it in chapter 3, verse 3. He says it took him um, three days to walk across it, right? So about 600,000 people are there. Um, and we know that if you take the 120,000 reference in chapter 4 for, as an idiom for children, it's probably about 600,000 people, okay? So at this time, it's not as strong as it was, but it still has a reputation and a massive size, and it's still a powerful city. But in this sense, I think God maybe has given them a famine and an uprising, and there was an earthquake in Nineveh at this time, and so God's preparing them for something, okay? And now he sends Jonah to go there, and Jonah says no. So verse 1 to 2 says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And he says, For their evil has come up before me. So Nineveh is not only a great city, it's an exceedingly wicked city. Do you remember what God said when he judged the world by the flood? He told Noah, I can't, I can't stand to be around these people anymore. I must judge the earth by the flood. Their wicked is always, their wickedness is always coming up before me. So what he's telling Jonah here is he's saying, I've had enough 
of Nineveh. Their evil is constantly rising up before me, Jonah. They are, they are rebelling in my face continually, and you must go and proclaim my judgment on them. And I think about that in our country and the way we live here. Just think about to what extent if you were the king of all glory and creation, right? You created everything by the word of your mouth and you knitted humans in, in the womb of their mother and you put the beautiful trees and the birds and the, all of creation and all of its beauty. And you created man in your own image and they are always cursing you, mocking you, rebelling against your word. They hate you. They despise you. This is what sin is. Don't, don't make any mistake about it. That's what sin is. And God is constantly taking that. Could you? I mean, honestly, if you had that kind of authority and power and someone was always spitting in your face constantly, how patient would you be? I don't, th- I don't know if I'd be patient at all. But God is extremely patient. He is so patient that this world is still existing and he has not burned it down yet, right? And at this point, his patience does have an end. He will not be forever patient towards sinners. You have to remember that. He, his, his patience will come to an end. And in this case, he's telling Jonah, my patience has ran out with Nineveh, and I want you to go and proclaim judgment on them. You see, God's grace is meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to lead you to Christ for forgiveness of sins. But one day that door is going to close And those who have not repented and turned to Christ for salvation, their evil will be dealt with by God's judgment. So listen to Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. I'm going to read four verses here. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. You see what he's saying? He's slow to anger. He's patient, but he will not acquit you. Genesis 18, verse 20 Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, he says, I will know. He knows. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Jonah, the end has come for Nineveh. Call out judgment. 
In fact, he says, arise. That word there in chapter 1, when he tells Jonah, arise, he's telling Jonah, go to Nineveh now. Go to Nineveh now. There's a sense of urgency. Arise, Jonah. Go to Nineveh. Now is the time to call out my judgment against them to announce the coming destruction of this great city of Nineveh to show the Ninevites their sin and destruction if they do not repent. This was God's plan, and it's not an easy calling. And so from a human perspective, you could imagine Jonah's thinking, dude, is this even worth the risk? This city is not even going to listen to me. Why would they listen to a prophet in a foreign land from Israel? Why would they even give me an ear to listen to me, God? This is, not, this is not a good idea. They have no reason to listen. It's not worth the risk. I know, God, you said to. But verse 3, we read, what did Jonah do? Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So he rejects God's word. And the reason he rejects and disobeys God's word is not primarily because Nineveh is a chief city and a Gentile city and they're enemies of Israel. It's not primarily because he's afraid of their brutality. But as it said in chapter 4, the reason that Jonah doesn't want to go is because he knows that God will show them mercy. That's what he said in chapter 4, verse 1 to 2. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord, this is after their repentance, and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So he knew God's judgment, but he knew God is merciful, and so he fled. Maybe there was some pride there too. Maybe he was, didn't want to be attached as a prophet of Israel to Nineveh. In any case, God wanted to show mercy to this city that deserved judgment. It kind of reminded me of Luke 9, 54. Do you remember the sons of thunder. Remember when Jesus was with them and James and John, the sons of thunder, they said, Lord Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume these Samaritans? And Jesus rebukes them, right? He's like, uh, no, that's not why I primarily came, wasn't ultimately so you can call fire down on them. He came to save sinners. And so here, God is telling Jonah, he came to show mercy to those who deserve judgment. But Jonah wanted it for himself, and he was selfish. Incidentally, sin is always selfish. Sin is always selfish. Disobedience to God's word is always coupled with the thought and concern for 
how does this decision impact me and my life? How does this thing God is calling me to do impact my personal happiness? That's how, that's how we think in our sin, when we choose sin. So, in any case, we don't always understand why God wants us to do something, and we might struggle with it, but if it's clearly laid out in his word, we are to obey and do it. How does that sound on your ears? Obey God. Obey his word. If he calls you to do something and you do the opposite, we call that what? Disobedience. But God says, obey me. Be holy, for I am holy. Listen to my word and, and do what I tell you to do. Because it's not going to work in this way. God is not going to sit you and me down. We do this at times with our children. We'll have a discussion, and we'll try to make a plan, and we'll have the kids in, and we'll say, you know what, let's, let us sit down around the table. Let's talk about what we're going to do. And what is, what's your idea, and what's your idea, right? And so everyone will give in their ideas, and we have this communication, and then we take all of that information in, and we process it, and then ultimately um, Nancy gives her insight, and I ultimately am led to make this decision on behalf of the family, or Nancy with the kids makes a decision for, for them, and we have a family discussion, not for everything. Some things we just, just the answer's no, right, or yes, or whatever. <laughs> but some things we'll do that. And, and, and I think we need to keep this in mind, that when it comes to God's word, what he clearly commands us to do in scripture, he's not gonna, he doesn't sit us down to have a family discussion. He, he's, not, he's not saying to Jonah, hey, you know what, Jonah, I have, a, I have a good idea here, and I think this is the best course of action, but Jonah, I kind of want to get your insight on this, and I want you to give me some feedback and tell me what you think is good for us to do. And then we'll kind of tie that in the mix here. It's not how God, God doesn't operate like that. He doesn't think like that. He's not like us. He doesn't sit us down and say, do you think you like what I said here in my word? Because if you don't like it, let's talk about it. And you try and figure out a way it works for you. That's how a lot of people look at God's word. When something is hard in the scriptures and they read it, they don't like it because it says something that means they must conform. And we as sinners, we hate conforming to God's word. So we struggle with it. You see it a lot when it comes to women in the church too, right? You see it a lot. When there, are, there are churches that are appointing women to be pastors in the churches. I know there's a lot of debate about it, but, but a lot of times it's because God's word is pretty clear about the role of elders within a church, that it's reserved for men, but the culture doesn't like it. And so they fight against it, and they want to explain it away. And God's saying, this is, not, this is not up for explanation. Homosexuality is the same thing. It's not up for discussion. It's clear that it is in violation to God's word. 
You can't get away from it. But in our sin, we want to explain things away. But God doesn't, it doesn't, he doesn't work. He's not going to call you to have a family discussion. His way is the right way, even when we can't understand why. We may not understand it, but it is the best way. It is the best way. So, it may not be fun, it may be hard work, it may challenge our pride, it may go against the desires of our flesh, but God's way is the right way, and we are called to obey God. So, if you ever want to buck the hard call of God, I, I thought of it like this, all those things that are hard things that God calls us to, remember this. Our Lord and Savior obeyed his father in what? In everything. Everything. Perfect obedience. In every thought, in every behavior, in every act, in everything he did, he perfectly obeyed the will of the father. And he perfectly obeyed the will of the father until the point of death on a cross. The death on a cross to the point where he would bear the eternal wrath of God in our place. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating drops of blood, what does that say about what he is about to bear? Does that make sense, right? We talked about this in the men's group. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had never sinned, never disobeyed, never did anything against the will of the Father. And here is a righteous, perfect man sweating drops of blood because he knows he is about to go and bear the sins of the world and take God's wrath on himself. Do you think that was hard? Infinitely hard. Do you think you could have bore up under that pressure, wouldn't have borne up under that pressure at all. You and me would have buckled like that. Is it hard for us then to obey God's word in light of what Christ did for us? Do we look at that as such a burden to obey what God calls us to do when Jesus took the eternal, infinite burden that we never could have bore. And so all God says is, beloved, be holy as I'm holy and obey my word. Has he not told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? For Jonah, he flees to Tarshish. Now, to give you an idea of how far Jonah ran, Jonah lives near Nazareth, which is a short distance from the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he was willing to go by foot to Joppa, which is 50 miles away. 50 miles by foot is the picture of a man who wants to get far away. 
isn't it? But that's just not the beginning. Jonah wants to get on the boat to go to Tarshish now. So he goes 50 miles away. He wants to go to modern-day Spain near the Rock of Gibraltar. It's about 3,000 miles on the opposite side of the Mediterranean Sea. Jonah wants to go to the other side of the ancient world. Jonah is running as far as he can run from God. And that's what sin does. Sin always takes you away from the presence of the Lord as far as it can, just like it did in the Garden of Eden. It says after they sinned, they hid themselves. And, and what you see here in, Gen- in uh, Jonah 1.3, notice this. The more that they tried to hide, the more he tried to hide, the deeper he fell. And this is pictured in chapter 1 in a very interesting way. Sin always drags you down. But look at, notice in chapter 1, verse 3, what does it say? So Jonah's told to arise. And we're actually going to close with this, okay? We won't get into the other two points. But Jonah, um, Jonah is told to arise and go to Nineveh. But look at Verse 3, what does it say? Jonah went down to Joppa. Verse 5, he went down into the inner part of the ship. He laid down to sleep. Chapter 2, verse 6, he went down into the depths of the sea. That's the picture that is being captured here. When you disobey God and God says to arise and do something, when you choose to sin against God, the picture is you are going down further away from God. Down, 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 down. That's what Jonah did. That's why he says that. How many times he says Jonah went down to sleep, down to the sea, down to Joppa, down to the inner part of the ship, trying to go down and away from the presence of the Lord. Now, we might look down on Jonah for fleeing Tarshish, fleeing to Tarshish. However, when we remember, as I said, how many times we have ignored God's call and disobeyed his word, when we realize that we are no no better than the prophet, at that point, beloved, you and me only have one hope. And our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ never went down in sin. He was crucified and went down and was buried into the grave because of our sin. And he arose from the grave because of his obedience. And he ascended back to the Father's right hand because of his own righteousness and glory. And because we've gone down in sin, Jesus went up on a cross. And he bore our sin so that Now that he has died in our place and taken our judgment and taken our wrath and risen again from the dead, that one day all of our disobedience in this life, he's atoned for it, he's paid for it, and one day we will, by God's grace, be risen again to obedience 
in obedience, perfect before God in heaven to obey him and to love him and to serve him forevermore. That's the hope. That's the only hope of the gospel we have. There is no other hope in this life because if we're left to ourselves, we are going down. But Jesus is a merciful savior and he has saved us for his glory. Praise God, Jesus is risen in his righteousness, his obedience, his love, his service, his mercy. We may be like Jonah, and like Jonah, we will be saved by Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this opportunity to look at your word and, and really to consider the disobedience of Jonah. Um, uh, you know, we intended, Father, to go uh, a little bit more into seeing how you disciplined Jonah to bring him back. And Lord willing, we will see that next week. But, but it's just been an, a, a really good reminder for us, Father, uh, that we are like Jonah in so many ways, uh, running from your word, running from the calling that you have sent us to do in so many different areas of our lives, not, not just to speak your word, Father, which we want to faithfully do, but even in the simple areas of our lives of avoiding sin and putting off immorality. Oh, God, you call us to do that as you've called Jonah to preach the word in Nineveh. And we know that we have failed you and sinned against you in those areas. And, and we just ask that you would not allow us to go so far down that we are without hope. And we know that just as you took Jonah and showed him mercy, uh, that you promised to do the same for us. And we know that Jonah never went so far down that he was out of reach from you. And so we rejoice in that truth to know that the same is true for us, that you have loved us and you have saved us and, and you have forgiven us and you have shown us mercy when we are sinning and running away from you. But God, knowing that, we also just want to ask, oh God, that you would help us by the power of your spirit to put away the deeds of the flesh. We don't want to take for granted your grace and your mercy. We confess that we have, oh God. We ask you to forgive us for doing that. We pray that you would give us victory over our sin. You would give us victory over the flesh. That by your spirit, you would help us to put to death the deeds of the body. Whether it is an addiction to alcohol or to drugs. If it's an addiction to anger or control over a loved one. If it's an addiction to self-loathing and pity and depression. Whatever it is, Father, we know that we struggle and sin in so many ways. And we ask that you would help, like your word says, give us deliverance over these things. That we might have victory over them in the name of Jesus. That you would receive the glory as we put away our sin and we cling to Christ. We need you, Holy Spirit, to help us have that victory because we know in and of ourselves we would never have that, have that victory. So we ask you for that grace and for that mercy. Help us to be a holy people. Help us to be a righteous people. 
Help us to be an obedient people. Help us to submit to your word and to love doing so and to do so for the glory of your name. We ask this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.